I want to uh, welcome uh, several of our guests today. Uh, Bernie LeClaire uh, worked with a pharmaceutical company for a number of years, VP there. And, and so he brings uh, a unique perspective to our conversation today. Uh, Dr. Dan uh, Elliott uh, is from our church down in uh, Hokesson, Delaware, and uh, he is going to bring a, a physician's uh, perspective to us today. And uh, State Representative Rob Kaufman uh, is um, with the 89th District here in Pennsylvania, and uh, he can uh, bring to us some uh, uh, political perspective, and it's all of those elements that we welcome. So welcome to our guests. Thank you, each one, for, for taking time out of a busy schedule and uh, uh, kind of uh, putting yourself out there. You know, um, uh, today, it is hard to have balanced, uh, emotionless conversations when it comes to uh, the coronavirus, how it's being treated and uh, uh, how it is being processed uh, in our churches and in the public forum. Um, we just, I got an email from one of our staff members last evening. Uh, he's been vaccinated, but uh, he's pretty certain that he has uh, acquired the uh, Delta variant. And so he's staying home and doing all of the uh, protocols that we find necessary uh, to keep our offices and our conference center open and moving. Uh, that's the world we're living in. Uh, it's still real. It's still out there. And um, how, do we, uh, how do we navigate not only the realities of coronavirus, but also as leaders, and many of our uh, participants today are pastors, associate pastors, they are credential holders within the Assemblies of God here, and so it is a closed group uh, so that everybody can kind of feel free to be transparent and um, uh, ask questions without needing to feel guarded about that. Uh, so that is the context that we find ourselves in, and I have a bunch of questions, and I'm just going to launch out. Uh, I'm going to uh, uh, ask these questions of our guests this afternoon. If you have a question uh, or a comment that you'd like to share, if you could enter that into the uh, chat area, uh, we'll come. We'll circle around this. Uh, in about, uh, I'm thinking, 30 to 40 minutes, and we'll start taking uh, questions from our other participants. Uh, I hope that seems okay with everybody. So, um, uh, Dr. Elliot, if you could, uh, in layman's terms, can you explain to us uh, the vaccine, the vaccination that's available, and uh, uh, what makes the coronavirus vaccination somewhat unique? Yeah, no, well, thanks. First of all, Don, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Um, and I'll just ask, please call me Dan moving forward. I, I am a doctor. I, I do, uh, you know, I take care of patients. I do a bunch of administrative responsibilities as well. Um, but, you know, today I, I, I am, so I'm, I, I come to you with that, but I'm also here as Dan. Uh, well, and, and, and may I interrupt you just for a second, Dan? Yeah. Each of our guests today are in leadership roles uh, in their local Assembly of God churches. So I think that that, uh, 
that helps us get uh, some perspective as well. So go ahead, Dan. No, exactly. And that's why I really wanted to share it. Um, you know, th it's really important. Like I'm here, I struggle with these things on a personal level. I struggle with these things on a family level. And I struggle with these things, certainly on a church level. So I'm trying to be able to see all of you instead of just seeing me on my little iPad here, but uh, keeps going back. But, you know, so this is a really challenging situation. I mean, I, you know, and how we handle these things, there's so much gray area, there's things all over the place, and it really makes it difficult. And, you know, I've really, um, you know, frankly, I, I'll be honest, I've struggled not just with the vaccine side, but with what's our responsibility? How can we do this, handle this? I, I want the church to handle this in the best possible way. I want us to be really aggressive in protecting people, our own, protecting others who may come in contact with our church and sort of our public witness. All those things have been super important uh, in my thinking. And I live in a world as a doctor, so I, I hear and listen to a lot of the things that are you know, you'd expect in that world. And I obviously take that responsibility very seriously. Uh, and I also think I've, I've stayed attuned um, to the, uh, you know, the needs of the church and the considerations of the church, uh, particularly as we go through this. So anyway, just a little bit of backing and Thank uh, you. every question is fair game for me. I, I don't, um, I don't, I'm not an expert in every area of this by all means. And we probably will test the boundaries of my uh, expertise and I'll let you know when I feel like I've reached them. But, um, you know, in terms of the vaccine, you know, I won't give you too much of the background and there's a lot of, you know, there's so much detail here, but the, the, the two vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine are new. Um, they they've, have not been vaccines that have been um, used at wide levels and FDA approved other, um, under emergency use or otherwise uh, before. Um, and that's, that's important to recognize because some of that was the challenge. Now, the technology is not new. Uh, it's been around for 20, 20 some years. Uh, matter of fact, it was sort of, it was interesting. Uh, there's a whole story to, to the person's professional career that sort of built a lot of the foundation for this work and how it wasn't necessarily accepted and all kinds of challenges on the back. Very interesting story from a scientific and an academic perspective. Um, but you know, from this point, what allowed the scientific community to do with this technology is generate a lot of very targeted vaccines in a very fast manner. So Operation Warp Speed and all of those things that you heard about in the political uh, and sort of scientific communities that was driving the vaccines, they, it was amazing. They were able to leverage this technology, which had not been used again for wide-scale vaccine use, and, and and to generate you know millions or even hundreds of millions of doses in a relatively rapid period of time. Now, so that's Pfizer and Moderna. Again, it's mRNA. There's a couple things if you want to go into it. We can go into a little bit more. Um, the other vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson, which you've heard about, one-shot vaccine, um, is more of what you'd consider like your traditional vaccine. There's a um, sort of there, there, there's a vector of virus that you use that doesn't have sort of the ability to cause sickness. It just allows a protein to get into the cells. And that's what you're used to from your flu shots and other shots that most people have, have had before. I recognize there's a, a pocket of people who um, are, are not interested in vaccines, period. Uh, we understand that that contingent is there and people feel that way. But what's unique about this this vaccine is there's people who seem to be specifically opposed to just this vaccine, but not necessarily to others. So again, the two Pfizer and Moderna are a new technology. Um, the, the Johnson and Johnson is sort of based on a traditional or more typical uh, technology. Again, happy to go into those more detail if it's relevant for the group at, at some point. And sounds like maybe Bernie can maybe offer some more detail on that side as well, based on his background, if we have more questions. But what's been interesting about this one um, you know, clearly there's science and clearly there's questions about this new vaccine type and what does it mean and how does it work? 
Um, frankly, though, I think a lot of the, the, the challenge to this vaccine is sort of that it came up and was produced in an era um, that frankly was sort of heightening everyone's level of distrust and mistrust of any organized systems uh, in a time period where um, things were increasingly politicized, uh, where there were people who had strong feelings about all sorts of things through the pandemic, about how we could handle it. And the vaccine, again, science aside, I think has taken on a life of its own in terms of sort of being aligned with sort of political views, worldviews, views on freedom, views on justice, views on all of these things that during the exact same time period when the vaccine was being developed were becoming polarized at a level that, you know, at least in my life and what I understand from others who've had more life than me really is, is, is uh, almost unprecedented in our community. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the vaccine conversation is almost, a, 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 it's just in the context of this larger one um, and it's, it's sort of become a, a badge or a lack of a badge um, in a lot of circles that has probably more to do with worldview and other things necessarily than the science or the vaccine itself, which uh, I think is a real challenge for all of us. Nice. Uh, Bernie think... LeClaire, if you could uh, jump in. Uh, Bernie and I had a conversation. We were uh, uh, celebrating a groundbreaking together over in Doylestown, and uh, we had a chance to have a meal together. And Bernie, uh, you, you made a statement during that conversation that really grabbed my attention. You said, other people read what other people write about the data. You said, I've read the data. That, uh, that, that grabbed my attention. So um, uh, from somebody who worked in the framework of the pharmaceutical companies, what unique features are there that you see in the uh, COVID uh, vaccine? And um, what conclusions were you drawing from the data that you, was, you were reading? Yes, well, uh, the data is actually available to anyone who would like to see it. Uh, the CDC, go to the CDC website, the FDA website. You can go to the company websites. The data that they release is absolutely uh, monitored by the FDA and is blessed, so to speak, from that perspective. But um, I was I've been involved in a lot of clinical studies, and therefore I'm used to clinical data. Um, but um, one thing I'd point out is that both Moderna and um, Pfizer use mRNA, which is the technology that we just heard about, and it causes human cells to produce the proteins that are on the surface of the coronavirus, and the body recognizes that and produces antibodies, which are various white blood cells. Um, the, um, the concern with something that has RNA listed in its name is, oh my gosh, it's going to change my DNA. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, neither of these vaccines enter the nucleus of any cells uh, where the DNA is, and they are destroyed the MR, uh, by the human cells after they uh, produce the uh, proteins, the mRNA is. Um, the vector adenovirus that's used in Johnson & Johnson is relatively common. Um, the, that still goes into the human cell and causes the human cell to produce the proteins. So the end result of both uh, types of vaccines are the same proteins from the 
uh, crown of the coronavirus are produced and antibodies to those uh, the body naturally produces. Um, the studies were very large, over 30,000 people, over 40,000 in the case of J&J. &J. Uh, one reason for that was to allow for gathering lots of data quickly by having very large studies. That's much larger than any of our typical studies in the pharmaceutical industry uh, would be. And so I look at this as it's a matter of how much data you got, not that it take five years. Mm -hmm. uh, the shortcoming of rapid is something that we're starting to see now. We do not know how long these vaccines uh, maintain effectiveness and at what level. Mm -hmm. And therefore there might be need for a booster. Enough for me. Okay. Pastor Don, um, I think it's important to note that, uh, you know, as I've talked to folks, one of the reasons, or some of the reasons that they have concerns about this vaccine, um, you know, as soon as, as soon as someone asks a question, a valid and um, insightful question about the vaccine, the data, uh, anything surrounding it, they're immediately labeled a anti-vaxxer and um, told that they should go in their, their hole with their tinfoil hat on and go away. Um, in, in a free society where you have a free exchange of ideas, you actually get to ask valid and reasonable questions mm -hmm. about the treatment, which the government is now attempting to mandate that you receive. Um, you know, you aren't allowed to ask questions about the vaccine adverse reaction system, uh, reporting uh, system, which demonstrates there are significant risks to the virus to certain folks. Um, you know, you know the, the one, one important question is, I've always known as vaccines generally prevent you from getting a disease. And now we are seeing that there is significant breakthrough uh, infections for those who have been vaccinated. Um, and so, you know, that's peculiar, you know, that, you know, I, I again, I always, I always thought vaccines were to prevent the disease. Now, we're not sure exactly what it is. You know, the same system that's telling you to get the vaccine, they're opposing reasonable and rational treatments, uh, many which have very uh, reduced costs. Um, you know, you look at some of the, the treatments that were you know, heaven forbid, uh, former President Trump mentioned a treatment out of his mouth and it was immediately uh, termed uh, a conspiracy theory. You couldn't possibly use it. And now we know that some of those treatments actually do have validity. Um, so those are some of the things that, that I'm hearing from people and I understand that rational people have concerns with. Um, and I, you know, I don't envy anyone in the medical community having to deal with this. Uh, um, I know it's been uh, uh, difficult in the in the governmental political realm as well. But just wanted to share some of those perspectives as well. Sure. Well, I think it's important that we help people understand 
that no vaccine is 100% effective. So uh, that's not unusual, uh, nor unique to these vaccines. Um, in fact, if you look at even back at the beginning, they were considered 94 and 95% effective. That means for every 100 people that got the um, COVID-19 that were in the placebo group, non-vaccinated really, uh, five got it, even though they were getting the vaccine. So that, that's true from the beginning. It's true for all vaccines and medicines. Uh, none of them are 100% effective. Um, I would say that the side effects have been underreported. Uh, but again, as I said, uh, I just, I view almost daily at the CDC, the side effect profiles, okay? And uh, for instance, um, over 300 million doses of vaccine have been administered. About 170 million people are fully vaccinated in the US. Um, and of those, uh, we, we even have uh, everything from reported deaths uh, to rather mild side effects that include things like fatigue and headache and so forth. So yes, that information is effective. Yes, all medicines have side effects and have some risk. The FDA, when they approve a medicine or a vaccine, look at what they call the risk benefit profile. And it's never zero risk, okay? And depending upon the severity of the disease, they will take more risks. So for cancer drugs, the risks are much higher than they are for something to treat a headache. Okay, um, but we should not underplay to people that the vaccines have some risk, although minuscule, minuscule, <laughs> multitudes of levels less than the disease itself. And um, all that data is available if to anyone who would uh, care to look at it. So it's not a secret. It's just you got to know where to look and maybe understand what you're reading a little better. Yeah, so maybe I can add a little color. And, and Rob, I, I think you're spot on. I think your comments really highlight the challenge of, you know, having the conversation that we're trying to have in, in this day and age and certainly trying to have it a community wide and, and scale. There's just it's so wrapped up in, in the, the sort of broader narratives of the community and broader narratives of politics and all the other pieces that really make it hard. So, you know, focusing more narrowly on the vaccine, um, the vaccine is, is honestly the, the most effective vaccine that we've had. Right. And so of others, if you get your flu shot, I don't know how many of you get your flu shot every year. Um, you know, it's not as uh, it, I mean, a lot of breakthrough with flu that it's not there. Right. So when you're talking about, you know, like what Bernie's saying, 90 plus percent effectiveness in preventing disease. And what's really is, is actually a tremendously high number. And what's really given the circumstances, particularly. So the other thing that's really critical, and I think for me, honestly, more than preventing the disease, and this gets to the comment about breakthrough, which I think is really important, um, it seems to have a, you know, it's not 100%, but a even higher uh, ability to uh, decrease the likelihood of having hospitalization and severe infection. So, and, and for me, clinically, I'll tell you, I mean, we all know this. Everyone can say, well, most people get COVID do fine. And, and that, that's true for a lot of people. I'll tell you, I have a 45-year-old, one of my best buddies who's in the hospital right now, who was an uh, elder of one of our, of our church, uh, who's in the hospital. Thank God he's doing well, um, but he's, you know, 
it, I would I would have put him in the category of slam dunk, going to do fine, um, would never have it. And he got it and he ended up sick and really sick when his wife next to him was just fine. So this disease is so unbelievable in its ability to wreak havoc on people, even though a good portion of younger, healthy people will do fine. And I do think part of the narrative here that from a physician's perspective that scares us so much is that um, the people have overplayed the fact that the majority do well. And I will just say, we've all seen it on Facebook and different places. It is tragic when it doesn't go well. Uh, and for huge portions of our population, it doesn't go well. And you can't always predict who that's going to be and how it's going to work in their lives. And so when I look at from a medical perspective, a vaccine that has, again, a much higher uh, effectiveness at preventing disease in the first place, um, ratio than I would typically expect from interventions that we give. And then on top of that has a, a again, not 100%, but a, a very high 90s percent uh, in terms of ability to avoid serious hospitalization complications. That is uh, really, really meaningful to me. And there are side effects of the vaccine. Anytime you get a vaccine, the whole point of the vaccine is to stimulate your immune system. So it does that. And some people, it does that a little bit. Some people, it does it more. That's why some people have a sore arm. I'm not, when I got my, I got Pfizer back in January, I, I literally had a sore arm. It was less to me than a tetanus shot that I would get, you know, reliably every 10 years or sooner if I had an incident. I had a little sore arm. My second one, I was a little afraid of. I had a little sore arm. I mean, it was like nothing. Whereas other people have, you know, fevers to 102, 103 for a couple of days. And really there are people who have much more severe reactions, but the overwhelming majority of people tolerate the, the vaccine and the vaccine process just fine. And so the, the other part of this conversation, which is really important, and frankly, as a medical profession, we're just starting to learn about it, is, is something called long COVID. And, you know, there's, uh, we refer to it as long COVID. So it's one thing to say, I'll get COVID and I'll get, uh, I'll get through it. And frankly, a portion of people won't. Uh, and that's, to me, that, that weighs really, really heavy. Because uh, I, I just, I don't want to see that happen, obviously. Um, but the other part is that the people, there's a good portion of people who recover from particularly from even mild, but certainly moderate or more severe COVID who have long-term impacts on that. And it's not really known, but the percentages are real. Um, so, you know, I have patients who six months after having a relatively mild or moderate case of COVID, not in the hospital, who still say they can't walk around their house without being short of breath, right? And so what you're weighing here is, is sort of, okay, I have short-term reactions to, to the I may have long-term reactions to the COVID vaccine that frankly, and Rob, to your point, we don't, we can't say with certainty the five-year, right, impact of this vaccine. We just don't know. Based on the science, we don't anticipate there being a lot, but, you know, it's a, it's a question that, that could be asked. But in my mind, when it came down to me, to my family, the people that I counsel, and certainly my patients, the what's known in the short term it starts to very dramatically outweigh sort of the potential concerns that are downstream for me. Uh, and that's in terms of preventing initial disease, even with the Delta variant, but certainly also even with the Delta variant, uh, reducing uh, severe illness and that life-threatening kind of illness. So we're absolutely seeing more breakthrough infections than we anticipated. But if you look anywhere at the hot spots, uh, and I know this because I, I was going to go to Atlanta two weeks ago for an Accountability Brothers weekend, and we ended up canceling it. But when I looked, I wanted to see in Georgia, what's the breakdown of active cases, which was a hotspot. And the slice of the pie piece that was sick people with vaccine was like negligible. All of the burden of illness is in the unvaccinated. And we're experiencing that 
uh, in our local communities as well. So from my perspective, we have an opportunity to reduce the burden of illness in a significant way that's documentable and empirical. Um, and, and that weighs really heavy. Uh, it weighs heavy in, in how I think myself and how I counsel people and frankly, how I think we as a church should engage with that. And then one last comment and then Don, I'll give it back to you. But, but Rob, you're 100% right. In my perspective is the same, that the tone of the conversation, the way we've been able to engage or not engage in the conversation has really limited the safety of the dialogue uh, around it. And that's led to some sort of premature closure, uh, probably in a lot of ways that, that, frankly, I think, Don, is probably why you brought this conversation together today. You know, one of the things that really uh, uh, concerns me and disturbs me is that um, we have so many opportunities, outlets, venues for having robust conversations and information exchange. And uh, our, our public leaders have, and as well as the news media, have taken the approach of declaring things as so. And uh, everyone is supposed to immediately capitulate to the declaration without having robust information. And so when you have that uh, scenario, then the conspiracy uh, theories have a lot of fuel because it feels like people are hiding facts from us or they're just treating us like animals you know, step up to the uh, gate, get your shot, shut up, don't talk about it. Uh, this is the way it's supposed to be. Well, you know, we have a highly educated Western civilization. People know how to read, they know how to research, and um, they want information, and uh, they will get information. And uh, the sad thing is, is I think that the, the most accurate information uh, indeed, was shielded from the populace uh, in the formative uh, months of the response to the pandemic. And uh, here we are, we find ourselves, I'm getting flooded in my office, uh, asking for information on uh, exemption letters from the church to uh, for our parishioners who are uh, not inclined to get vaccinated. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm trying to take the lid off and uh, uh, let this thing breathe a little bit, get some more information so that people can have uh, a, a more broadly informed base of uh, uh, decision-making uh, information. Um, let me ask one more question down the medical model uh, trail, and then I want to move a little bit more toward uh, social and political uh, matters. But um, um, we hear of people having these reactions and responses to the vaccine. Uh, as it turns out, we have a relative of somebody internally here in the office that actually died from a flu vaccination that went sideways, and then they got COVID, and they died from the COVID. So uh, it, it was, yeah, it was kind of an anomaly, but it only takes one example. And that's the basis of my question. So there's a, a threshold of acceptability for this to go sideways. What is that threshold 
what what does the medical and scientific community say? Okay, that's good enough. It it, it we know there's risk, and it's really tough that some people are going to have uh, long term, maybe lifelong or even mortality issues around what's what's acceptable. Help us understand how the medical and scientific community processes that. Yeah. I'm going to give one answer, but I, honestly, it sounds like from what I've learned from Bernie already that he's much closer to the sort of FDA regulatory process. And there's some real empiric standards for things like that. Uh, although, you know, I, I'll look forward to that. I, by the way, I, I do have a master's in epidemiology. And so I, I do wade into this space and I like numbers and I play with them in this space. I'm not going to give you any numbers. <laughs> Just so you, Sure. Um, but, but it's a balance. And Bernie spoke to this before, right? You know, it depends on the severity of the situation that you're trying to prevent, right? If, if it's a hangnail, you don't want to give something that's going to give 10% of the population, you know, an infection in their eye, right? I mean, you know, the, it's just, it's this balance of what it is. And so those things are movable. Um, I, I will only say that, um, you know, flu is a great example because, again, many people are comfortable with flu shots. They know their position on flu shots, et cetera. The flu shot has a certain set of side effects, right? Because it, 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 it causes the same reaction that the COVID vaccine does towards COVID. It causes an immune response. That's how it works. It preps your immune system. And in a subset of people, that will then cause other immune problems to happen. And I'm not just talking about I felt like, you know, I wanted to lay in bed for two days. But people will have serious effects. But what people forget is that if you get the flu, the flu generally will have any of the bad effects that the vaccine may cause, the flu most likely has those in its back pocket for a proportion of patients who get the flu. So what I'm trying to say is there's always the, the, the treatment will have a set of side effects potentially, and then the illness, in addition to the primary illness, may also have a secondary set of side effects. The difference is you're giving yourself the vaccine, you're hoping to avoid the flu or the condition, et cetera. But anyway, it's this balance of ideas that allows people to tolerate or, or sort of understand what the threshold is. Now, again, like Bernie said before, and I'll turn it over to him now, you know, the FDA is very close. On, and if you read some of the FDA briefings and you look at how the FDA is handling these things, you know, they are moving. Again, it's very quick. It's faster than anything's ever gone through our, our regulatory system like this. But they are paying attention to the, the, the dotted I's and cross T's in terms of making sure that they're comfortable at what these things are. And to the degree that, you know, they're pushing back at times on the political side, they're, you know, trying to maintain their sort of independence and, and authority as a scientific and regulatory body. Um, so anyway, that's some balances from my mind. But Bernie, I'm curious about your perspective being sounds like a little closer to the actual regulatory submission and approval process. Yeah, um, a couple things. Uh, one is, believe it or not, doctor, this is not the first or fastest approval. Uh, there's even one all the way back in 1959. That was as rapid. So it depends upon the severity, if you will, and the size of the, of the risk as to how rapidly they'll move. Most of the FDA time is not spent studying the data. It's spent waiting to get to the submission to study the data, okay? And so all they've done here is they've said, we're going to immediately look at the data as it becomes available. It's not that they've shortchanged at all their data perusal. They also use experts, epidemiologists like yourself and others that are experts. And they have these expert panels that weigh in on the risk benefit. But I am gonna quote you a couple numbers, okay? Out of 310 million doses, 
there have been about 6,000 reported deaths, okay? Of those 6,000 reported deaths, none or a significant percentage of them are like three months after the vaccine and have nothing to do with the vaccine. It's just that that's what the doctor wrote on the coroner's report. A 90-year-old woman, for as an example, uh, gets uh, the vaccine. Three months later, she dies. She died from the vaccine. Um, so we don't, it actually turns out that one of the areas that we know the least about is deaths because unless there's an autopsy uh, performed, we don't actually know what happened and very few people have autopsies, okay? The other thing I wanna say about just data in general is um, there's what scientists call anecdotal data, okay? And that means I know somebody who, as you mentioned, got sick from the flu vaccine and got the COVID and died. There must be something wrong here. Uh, the data that the FDA uses is statistically controlled, statistically analyzed, controlled studies. And that's a study where you always have a group, a placebo group, who doesn't get the vaccine in this case. And you have a group, same uh, population, et cetera, uh, as similar as can be, who gets the vaccine. And they look at the difference in the number of people who got sick and, the, and what the side effects were. The side effect that's most often uh, listed that we uh, believe to be associated with the vaccine is inflammation of the lining of the heart. And doctor, I guess maybe you've, you've heard this. Um, that number is three people per million doses, okay? And none of those have died. All of those are recovered. It does take two to three months sometimes to recover completely, but all were treatable and recovered. So what we're really talking about where we have firm data, really low side effects. Now, I'm not talking about the fatigue or the sore arm or obviously, which practically everybody gets a sore arm when they get a shot of some significance, but, uh, but the standard for the FDA again is what's the risk? The death rate is about in the United States, 1.8% of people who get COVID die, much higher than that in 65 and older, okay? The, even if you were to blame all these deaths of people that, that could possibly be associated with this, you would, uh, you would be no, you would be nowhere close to that number. In fact, think about six out of three uh, six thousand out of three hundred and ten million shots versus two people out of a hundred. Okay, um, those are the the kinds of numbers. Now, does that mean that there's not some risk associated with the vaccine? Again, absolutely, there is. But when the FDA looks at this, the risk benefit clearly falls in the favor of the vaccine, not only to the individual that gets the vaccine, but to the general public as well, whom they may spread the uh, disease to. So when you're getting vaccinated, you're not just protecting yourself, you're protecting others that you may come in contact with. And that's more of the 
FDA and the medical view that you're hearing now? So I want to shift gears just a bit and uh, ask Rob uh, Kaufman a question about uh, processing all this, Rob. I'm sure that you have uh, been flooded with questions and statements and maybe accusations <laughs> from uh, your constituents uh, about the, the way that this whole thing has been handled. Um, uh, what, and, and I'm, I'm, I wanna be cautious about how I frame out this question, but what misinformation have you had to identify, navigate through and help citizens just there, there's just so much information. What 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 have you had to deal with as a uh, as a leader in the political area? Well, the misinformation from both sides yeah. uh, is, I mean, it has run rampant. From um, you know, from the vaccine has trackers in it on the this this the strange side to. Um, well, I mean, just just this past weekend, mainstream media went crazy with uh, stories about um, ivermectin, uh, overdoses of ivermectin overload Texas hospital, um, you know, because they want to make sure that, that people believe that all these conservatives are going out and overdosing on a livestock drug. Uh, to treat COVID. Um, all you got to do is go online and you'll find um, MSNBC went ballistic and loved sharing that one. Um, you know, be, and it, it's extraordinarily frustrating. It just continues to promote the divide. Um, you know, speaking of not maybe not really fully discussing or, or causing division and untruth, the, the, the concept of natural immunity has not been considered at all during this process, which brings, is either conveniently left out, is, um, is you know, whatever, ignored intentionally, unintentionally, you can't bring it up. Um, you know, that is one thing that I've not heard brought up in this conversation. Um, now there are dozens of studies which say that natural immunity is uh, better at making sure you don't get the Delta variant than the actual vaccine. Yet um, there are many in the physicians community who are imploring people who have already, you know, natural immunity. I've been tested for COVID antibodies four times now. Um, over six months, all four times I've had robust antibodies. Um, but if I went to many practitioners, they would implore me to get the vaccine while studies say that I uh, actually have a less chance of getting the Delta variant than folks who have actually been vaccinated. Um, so it, it breeds mistrust. Is it is it always misinformation is just leaving out details? Is it not talking about that subject because then people won't get vaccinated? Makes people 
believed that there's an agenda with the vaccine rather than saying, okay, let's, let's focus on the vulnerable. Let's get them vaccinated. Those are the most important people to get vaccinated. Um, so those, you know, are, are, are some of the things it's maybe not just misinformation, but it's leaving out conversations, leaving out details that just breed this uh, hyper partisanship even. Could, yeah. you give us, uh, could you give us a, a, an idea of the pulse, Rob, uh, in the, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the political arena about the mandate uh, to receive uh, the, the vaccine and uh, people losing their jobs. Uh, we, this, these are the rumors that are really flying around. You know, military is going to mandate it or else. And uh, it seems like, um, it seems like uh, uh, the government in a lot of ways won't even have to do this because uh, our organizations and our companies and so forth are so politically toned today that they may do the dirty work for the... <laughs> Maybe I maybe I'm talking too much. You you no. talk. Uh, and, what's the pulse? And and that is um, that is the concern of many who are not anti-vaccine but pro-freedom, the ability to determine. Um, uh, you know, you, you see all sorts of things when you you go online in the morning. But one was uh, a picture of of two folks holding hands. One had a had a sandwich board saying, I'm, ax I'm unvaccinated, I support freedom. The other one had a sandwich board saying, I'm vaccinated and I support freedom. That's kind of where I am. We, we give out an enormous amount of accurate information and let folks decide, but people are absolutely beside themselves being told what they need to do. Um, we've you know, obviously never seen a campaign like this before uh, to use big government, big pharma, big tech, um, big business to collude to force everyone to get vaccinated. That's strong, I'm sure, for some folks to hear me say that, but that is really the perception that I hear from average everyday Pennsylvanians. Um, and people are, are holding the line. I mean, uh, when you have the U.S. military, which is made up primarily, we hope, of healthy young men and women who would be not extraordinarily vulnerable should they receive, they should, their statistics should be far lower. Um, you have, you know, uh, the, the Chinese military isn't vaccinating their military folks, the Russian military isn't vaccinating their, their military folks. It's just, it's odd why we would be the ones mandating vaccines for our healthy young men and women. Um, but nonetheless, it appears to be happening. Um, I've, you know, there, there are folks that I'm close, close to that I would probably consider vulnerable. And I would, um, I've said to them, well, if I were you, I would probably get vaccinated, but, I believe in your freedom to do what you choose. So if you choose not to, that's fine. You know, I, I, I love you, I, I, don't, I don't care, that's up to you. Um, but there are people that I'm close to that I say to, I have no idea why you would get vaccinated. 
Um, your your risk uh, your risk group is so low, um, and a lot of times they've already been uh, infected, and so they have natural immunity. Um, so there there are many reasons people don't aren't getting vaccinated, and government ignores all of them, and that is that is where you are finding this this. Um, this panic and this fear is because government literally ignores every logical reason why someone wouldn't want to get vaccinated. Yeah, uh, let me just make a comment that um, the government does consider natural immunity and, and perhaps you're not aware, but you've heard the term herd immunity? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, herd immunity includes all those who've had the disease and have natural immunity and those who are vaccinated. And the percentage that they're hoping to reach is like 85%, uh, 90%. But, but what I was terming is, is, is in contrast to mandating the vaccine, they do not recognize natural immunity for an exemption to get the vaccine, Bernie. That's what I was referring to. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of, uh, as aware as you may be of government uh, mandates. Um, I, I think, um, I tend to look again at the risk uh, benefit equation. And yes, we are free. And for instance, we're free, we have freedom of speech, but we're not free to yell fire inside a crowded theater. That's against the law. We're not free to drive on the left side of the road because we put ourselves and others at risk. So yes, um, one has to look at the picture of uh, we're we're not absolute. This country, no civilized uh, country, has absolute freedoms, and we're certainly not free to kill our neighbor because we don't like their dog barking, or they're mowing their lawn at the wrong time, or whatever. So um, we we have to. I am against absolutism um, because I'm afraid of where that leads longer term. I don't, I don't want to see the government more powerful than what it is, quite frankly. I'm, I'm not one of those people that trust the government greatly. But I do believe in following good scientific practice to the extent people can and are willing. And I believe that this fear of government mandate is actually one of the more significant um, um, constraints on uh, people getting vaccinated. The other thing I have to tell you is that um, there have been plenty of pastors who have preached that the vaccine is the mark of the beast. And that's out there online. And if any of you haven't seen it, you just haven't been looking at some of the odd stuff out there, okay? And I will tell you that of all of the population groups, the Evangelist, evangelist Christian population has the second highest not going to get vaccine rating of any group. Okay. That's a little bit disappointing to me because there's nothing about being Christian that should make you, in my mind, obviously I view the uh, coronavirus and the COVID-19 as the work of the enemy. Okay, 
And I do not view the vaccine as the work of the enemy. It's countering uh, the work of the enemy. Uh, I don't know why that is, but those are, those are data that are available. And I'm not certain I understand completely why we evangelistic Christians are so anti-vaccine. The number is 27% that said they will never uh, get the vaccine. The, um, um, some minority communities are in that range as well. One, one minority community is in that range as well. But, but that's it. I don't know. So actually, actually, I believe the statistic in New York City is 70% of African Americans are unvaccinated. Well, I'm not talking about unvaccinated. I'm talking about people who say they will never. Oh, who will never get the, get the vaccine. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me jump over to our chat bar. Uh, we have a lot of questions and uh, we may go a little bit of overtime here, but um, Paul says, I read an article recently that said three out of every four women of childbearing age have not been vaccinated due probably to reports of possible links to infertility. Questions about this. What is that idea based on? Is there validity to it? Mm -hmm. uh, I, anybody I answer I'll let them speak to the validity of it, but I will speak to the fact that I have had multiple contacts from people of childbearing age who have experienced extraordinary long-term um, menstrual type bleeding after receiving the vaccine. So that I'll, I'll just leave that at, at um, you know, something that I have heard firsthand from folks and the medical professionals can speak to that. Yeah, no, I mean, I'll, I'll speak to a little bit again. There's, there's things on all sides of this conversation. Um, you know, I think early on, and, and you cannot disentangle the vaccine from all the social, cultural, political phenomenon that, that Rob referenced and that, that others are, are certainly aware of. But early on, um, from whatever reason, it doesn't seem like it came from any valid source, but there was a widespread sort of rumor that, that circulated and was particularly um, of interest to childbearing age females that said that, you know, this is going to cause all kinds of problems with reproductive capabilities. That, that just started. So that became almost like the, the foundational starting point for a lot of people culturally, depending on what circles they were in. And it became the, the, the hypothesis to disprove, um, you know, as you were working through. And, and so um, it's been hard to recover from that. And you can imagine in healthcare, uh, a lot of the workforce, particularly nurses, are, are young women. And a lot of them, you know, had heard that and were afraid of moving in that space. That's moved over time to some degree, but it's still an active piece. You know, the information that, that's out there medically, certainly, you know, all of the major medical societies relate, all of major medical societies, and specifically those that are related to women's health, you know, ACOG, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, all kinds of others related to women's health, you know, unequivocally uh, support vaccination for all uh, pregnancy, you know, and including people who are pregnant, right? So it's super important. Um, there's been fertility trials that looked at people who were going through IVF type treatments, uh, and they looked at people who were and were not vaccinated uh, and they've not shown any differences. These trials are small. They're all coming out. Um, I, I'll tell you again on a personal note, because I think a lot of this conversation is personal. Um, you know, I have a, a 12, uh, 16 and 18 year old daughters, all of whom are vaccinated. Right. So, I mean, that tells you how strongly I felt about it. Um, and I was not concerned at all about what those other pieces are. Again, you're balancing short term knowns with long term unknowns. Um, and for me, the short-term knowns were much more palatable. 
I did see a question in the chat, Don, just to, to jump to it, and I think it's important, and it was referenced earlier, and it, it honestly informs a huge part of my views. Um, I, I'm very concerned. One of the things that I felt personally that I couldn't live with uh, is if I had COVID and did fine, but I pass it on to either a patient, a family member, uh, you know, someone else in my church, someone else with whom I have community and fellowship, and that person did poorly. Uh, and that was something that early on I decided I didn't want myself or my family to be a vector for it. And frankly, I, I'm disappointed, uh, like Bernie said, about sort of the, the sort of the, the fact that the, the and it's largely white evangelical church members are the ones who are sort of labeled in those studies as being the most resistant. Um, I, I am concerned about what that means for how we're uh, potentially our vectors in transmitting this condition in other places. And so, again, that's a personal level. That's a personal concern that weighs heavier for me frankly, than a lot of other things, uh, just based on it. But anyway, the, the issue about the women's health is there. Uh, it started as one of these rumors, uh, one of these things that was sort of an unfounded concern. Um, it's not an irrational question. And, and Rob, to your point, I'm not saying it's an irrational question. It, it's a good question to be asking. But as we weigh what we know and what we don't know, there doesn't seem to be evidence to support that there's any, any effect there. So um, again, strongly supportive of, of the vaccination process uh, in all those populations. Here's a good question. Uh, comes from Teresa. Uh, she said, I saw the stats for Pennsylvania today, and uh, it seems that there are more cases this September than last September uh, 2020, though 60% have been vaccinated, uh, plus more natural immunity. Why is that? So this is, a, and I, I will take this one if it's okay, because this is, this is a slam dunk, and this is where the data is very clear. Um, the, the cases that are happening now are largely concentrated in the unvaccinated, particularly the ones that get sick. Now, that's not saying vaccinated people aren't getting sick or getting COVID. They are. And matter of fact, they, it's known now that they're being, that you can be a vector as well, even after you've been immunized. Like, so you can be vaccinated, get COVID, either be asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic and be a vector to pass COVID on to someone else, which is and again, you're learning more about me maybe than you wanted to know, but I'm particularly conservative still, even in a vaccinated status of what does my engagement look like with other people? You know, I'm not routinely wearing a mask in all different settings, but I'm very conscious of who I'm touching, hugging, you know, what that looks like. And I honestly, I feel a huge burden of responsibility for the church uh, to take that caution seriously. But what, what you see now is that the pockets where it's happening uh, and where, where COVID is happening and, and flourishing is in the unvaccinated population, which if all trends keep playing out is gonna end up being disproportionately the evangelical Christian community who's decided to keep themselves in that position, which again, I think about from a, and I don't wanna to get too far down this and I know people would feel differently, but I think about what does that say to the world? What does that say about our ability to engage in the things that matter uh, now to people? Um, I think it's an important question for us to be considering. Yeah, uh, Peter Jowdry also asked this question. Um, he's, he says, VUCA, uh, volatile, uncertain, complexity, ambiguous. This is our current condition. It's providing a great challenge for believers and church leaders. And here's the question. I'm wondering what we should be doing or not doing as leaders. And I'd like, uh, I'd like uh, all three of you to jump in on that. Um, you know, as, as pastors, we have uh, uh, experienced a tremendous amount of stress. Uh, pastors by nature are people pleasers. We try to. We're God pleasers first, but we, we certainly want to uh, 
be in favor with God and man. And so uh, pastors have found themselves in the middle of the road, and there's a, a cliche that says he who stands in the middle of the road gets shot at from both sides. And uh, we, uh, uh, we find ourselves, uh, you know, uh, it's like getting shot to death with a BB gun. Uh, we, we keep taking these shots, and, uh, and it gets sore for a, after a while. From your point of view, what, what, what might ministers be able to do to lead well with regard to this issue of vaccination and not vaccination, and then we get into the mask, and I guess that rolled out again today in Pennsylvania. Uh, your comments, please. Well, okay, I, I, I politicians, you know, kind of need to be people pleasers in some respect, uh, or else they uh, they they don't have their position to lead from. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, just for perspective, I I was born a Assemblies of God pastor's kid. And um, so I lived in that uh, role for a lot of years of my life. And now I'm in leadership at my church and have been for many years. So, uh, you know, I, I think pastors should not attempt to be scientists or politicians or uh, prognosticators. Um, you know, I think very frankly, you know, they should, you know, probably uh, stick to the word and, you um, in, but you know we need to we need to be supporting freedom. I mean, the, the reality is um, that um, you know we don't need to be getting into trying to uh, force. Now, for instance, in Australia, I believe they're going to have COVID passports come October for folks to go to church. Um, so I suspect there'll be a great house church movement beginning in Australia, which may be a great, great thing. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, as parishioners come to you, you know, privately, you know, encourage them to pray about it, be in the word and use their own conscience um, and their own judgment. You know, I, I was... Um, I was impressed by something that that uh, that Dan said. Um, I, you know, as an elected official, I go out, I meet lots of people. Um, you know, I'm in people's homes, older folks' homes, and I have to say, I was very hesitant to do that kind of thing until, um, you know, in, until I knew I had COVID and had recovered and had that. Uh, um, that COVID antibody test, because I was far more concerned that I was going to be a carrier to folks, and I did not want to be that way. Um, and, uh, you know, that removed a lot of my, you know, hesitation in that. And I, you know, I respect Dan and some of his uh, concerns and reasons for wanting to, uh, to be vaccinated. And that's where I'm at, is that people have all kinds of concerns and, and reasons for what they do. And as pastors, um, you need to respect that. I certainly don't think you should be preaching vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate from the platform. I mean, uh, I think that would be highly irresponsible as it would be to tell people it's the mark of the beast. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I mean, that may be a little vague, but I, I, uh, I don't necessarily think vaccinations is something you need to weigh in on on Sunday morning from the pulpit. Okay. 
Thank you. Daniel Bernie. Bernie, I'm curious. Why don't you lead? <laughs> um, a couple things. Oh, one is uh, a pastor is responsible for his flock, okay? And the safety of his flock in his church um, is a legitimate concern. For instance, um, we've all got fire systems, we've all got all kinds of hazard protection, uh, etc. And so I don't think it's necessarily true that we can totally ignore the hazard of the pandemic that we're involved with. So many of us, you know, didn't have gatherings for a while, uh, mandated masks for a while. Um, and I, I know the Pendel District has had different rules. Uh, if you were to go to the extreme, the CDC guidelines since July 27th have said that indoor gatherings, even for vaccinated people, should wear masks. Um, and obviously that would apply to churches. Nobody's mandating that, but that's the CDC guidelines uh, with the Delta variant and so forth. I try, I'm an elder, I'm not the pastor. I try to inform people, okay? And answer their questions and try to give them data, accurate data, which I study every day basically, so that they can make the most informed decision. Some of my very best friends have chosen not to get vaccinated, even though one of them works in a school. I don't know, she may have to eventually. Um, and they're over, you know, even though some are over 65 and are in higher risk groups, et cetera. Um, I know in a nursing home, a, a, a friend of mine who is a, uh, a pastor or a credentialed uh, pastor, um, no longer uh, serves in that role, but uh, had to get vaccinated in order to work in a nursing home. And he did so. So I, I don't equate saying vaccine, vaccine, get vaccinated, get vaccinated to saying it's the mark of the beast. I think one of them has good scientific basis for it. And the other one is somebody's imagination, okay? And I don't equate that. So I don't, don't agree, I'm sorry. I don't equate those two. But again, I don't know that you can preach it uh, from, the, from the pulpit, but I do think you need to protect your sheep. That is part of the of the role. Yeah, really good comments, and um, you know, it's, it's a hard question, right? I mean, every day, um, you know, pastors, pastoral staff, others have faced hard decisions for the last eighteen months, right? Probably twenty five times a day. You know, in, as a, a medical professional, I feel, and the people that I work with and make decisions around me, you know, feel that as well, and it's so dynamic. Um, I probably, you know, my bias is that the church is not, um, and I, I don't, maybe this word isn't the right one, but it's the one that comes to mind, hasn't respected COVID enough and the threat that it is to the, the health and the, the safety and the well-being of the body. And there's been a lot more noise about um, sort of some of the, the things, the infringements and the things that are restrictions, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it's, it struck me, and I, I think, I hope our church has had a, a healthy balance as we approach this. I think we've tried to. Um, that it, it actually, it, it's not an either or situation we're in, right? It's a both and situation. And if we wanna 
keep the freedoms that we have if we want to serve and, and keep well the body that we have and that we're responsible for, we, we probably need to actually separate some of the sort of the, the, the things that keep us sort of locked in a particular mindset and say, gosh, what is safe and healthy and, and how can we protect our body best? Um, you know, and I think vaccination is a piece of that. Again, I, I'll leave it to pastors, I, you know, whether you, you preach that you know, from the pulpit, I agree there's, there should be sensitivity around that. There's no biblical passage on that, right? I mean, we all understand, um, you know, where it is. I don't know that you need to shy away from, but again, that's, that's way above my pay grade. So I, I won't uh, go any further than that. But I do think this idea of like church, what does responsibility look like? And I'll give you an example. On, on Sunday, uh, I was actually driving down to visit my dad. So I was watching church remotely and I, I knew there was a, a, a great person in our church who uh, happened to have recently gotten COVID. Uh, and was sort of out of his window, um, so I, but also on our prayer team. So I, I sort of called him and I just asked that, hey, listen, I know you're out of the technical window from CDC and isolation guidelines, but maybe the best thing is not to be face-to-face -face with people, like two feet away, praying over them, laying hands on them in this service. And, um, and, and I said, how do you feel about that? And he said, disappointed. And I said, I know. But, you know, how much would we feel if, if you know, again, you're one of the 5% that's still carrying and shedding vaccine, et cetera. So I weigh disproportionately heavy the adverse burden of illness in the community. So that's my uh, sort of, you know, just letting in my disclosure. I think the church should be more upfront. If you're sick, don't come. And I know we have signs and those kind of things, but really helping people understand what it means. If you're sick, don't come. If you're not morally ethically opposed to vaccination why would you you know avoid it you know certainly i don't know that there's scriptural and other grounds to do it um, and then guys like protect people around you so if you have to modify your behavior if you have to wear a mask if you have to keep social distance my oh my uh, isn't that something and and frankly it has changed three months ago four months ago if we were having this conversation we all felt a tremendous amount of freedom and flexibility coming out the delta variant has changed that dramatically. Uh, and it is, especially now that people are back in schools, it's going through and it's going to keep moving through at a much more rapid pace. Mm -hmm. I like to think, I like to think of the church as, as an agent of positive change, serving hands and feet of Christ, being active. I think one of those things is doing everything we can to prevent the progression of this illness. And if it takes a couple simple things for some period of time, I'd like to see the church encouraging that and kind of moving us through a position of sort of resistance and obstinance when it comes to some of these things, which unfortunately is sort of the caricature, uh, which is, has honestly been, been uh, sort of portrayed, but also is, is based on some, some real behavior. So anyway, that's Dan talking to a bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ here. And I don't know that I, I don't pretend to have it all right, but that's, that's my thoughts. Dan, I'm, I'm right with you. And I, I want to just mention one other thing to everybody. It's not true that there is no scriptural reference to preventing disease. Uh, if you've read the Old Testament lately and you go back and look at the skin illnesses and how the priest was to investigate and how careful they were about those and isolating those people, et cetera, et cetera, it's, there certainly is scriptural mm -hmm. reference uh, to it. So I see you laughing. Uh, 
somebody else reads the Old Testament too. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good, good comments. Well, let, let me just wrap this up with a couple of thoughts. Um, we've been saying all along, we've, we've been very reluctant to issue edicts and mandates out of this office because this whole thing's been shifting and changing and morphing, and it's been a challenge for us to keep up with it. Um, uh, knowing your context is hugely valuable. Um, uh, you know, it looks different in the inner city of Philadelphia than it does in Clearfield County. Um, people are more spread out just to begin with. Doesn't immunize them, but the rate of transmission is different from church to church because the community they find themselves in. So understanding uh, your context and making wise choices and whether it be counsel from the, the pulpit, I don't know when that's appropriate, but there are times where it is appropriate because uh, people want to, and this, I don't mean to drive in a lane that we don't belong in. You know, again, we're not medical professionals, we're not scientists, but um, there are times where a comforting word from the pastor, uh, look, if you want to get the, uh, the vaccine, you feel free to do that. That's your, that's your prerogative. And, and uh, if you're choosing not to get the vaccine, uh, you're still going to have a safe harbor here. Um, but we're, we do ask that you be wise and considerate of other people in the congregation. Um, so uh, knowing, your, knowing your, uh, your, your context is hugely important. The other is a discernment issue, and we're going to speak more about this in a couple of weeks on our uh, September 27th Soup with the Soup, and that is uh, discernment and uh, being able to uh, understand what issue we're really having. Um, there are some people who have an issue with being vaccinated. That's part of their philosophy of personal taking care of themselves medically. There is another issue that is just as hot that is on the table, and that is the government telling me what I can and can't do, infringement on my political rights. We have to be able to discern what we're having a conversation about because those are two very different conversations. And uh, uh, some of the folks who are uh, putting in for religious exemption for the vaccination do not have a, a footing to make that claim. Um, what they really have is a political problem with being vaccinated. And that's a different conversation. So pastors uh, just being aware of those differences and uh, uh, being able to navigate uh, some of the congregants through those uh, nuances, it's part of the day that we're living in. Well, I want to say thank you to Rob Kaufman, Dan Elliott, and uh, Bernie LeClaire. Thank you for, for joining us. You, you've, you've been so valuable to our conversation. I, uh, I hope that we never have to have you come back, but um, 
I wouldn't be surprised if there would be another conversation somewhere down the track. So thank you for thank you for joining us and thank you everybody. This uh, this uh, uh, Zoom session has been recorded, so you can reference it either uh, in our archives or on podcasts. So uh, you're welcome to do so. Thank you once again, everybody. Thank you.